Well, let's get, um, I do want to just share with you tonight, we start a series appropriately Memorial Day weekend. Um, it'll be uh, an examination of uh, the biblical view of government. Uh, we're going to be examining it from the basis of 1 Samuel. That's going to be our main text that we're going to be using throughout the study, but we're going to be going all the way into Genesis, into the New Testament, and really looking, uh, and we're also going to be exploring some of our founding fathers' uh, arguments over the creation of this government, um, but also in relationship to it, and uh, hopefully a good study throughout the summer. Uh, and it's very difficult for me to put together topical studies. It is very against how I preach. You guys know that. So we're going to bring this into bear through a series on 1 Samuel as we see the transition for Israel from uh, a theocracy to a monarchy. And we're going to be looking at that uh, process and how should the people of God respond to it and examine our role uh, in our society with regards to government within the church what is appropriate church government, what does a theocracy look like in church, and also our role to the government in terms of larger society of nations. And so look forward to kicking that off tonight and invite you to come as well as the Sunday school. If you'll turn in your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, within which is a passage quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Psalm 116. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is our custom. Psalm 116, we'll read the entirety of this chapter. God's Word declares, I love the Lord, because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant, who you have loosened my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's go, Lord, together in prayer. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and abiding love for us, the opportunity to gather your name this morning. We commit this time to you and pray that you might work and move in it, not that we are deserving of that, but we uh, beg upon your mercy and your grace toward us, that we might have the working of your Spirit in us and about us, that we might uh, see your hand uh, laid heavily upon us if necessary, that we might conform our ways to your ways, that we might turn from sin to righteousness, that we might desire to serve you all our days with all of our resources. And Lord, where we have lacked in that regard, we pray you might forgive us, cleanse us. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to continue to press on, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm sure you're starting to think he is never going to get out of this chapter. Uh, I looked through several of my commentaries this week, and it's kind of interesting how um, some of them I have just a single volume of just 2 Corinthians. By the time you get to the end of chapter 4, they are halfway through the book. 
uh, in their commentating. That is how important, how critical the first four chapters of Second Corinthians are and really laying the groundwork for what's to come. Chapter 5 is going to be important as well. Uh, when we look into the application of the groundwork that Paul is laying for his ministry to uh, defend its uh, not only its existence, but how he has conducted himself. Uh, and we have seen some great theology, and it just takes time to, to uh, plow through it. Uh, and we're going to continue that in chapter 5. We really aren't going to accelerate much until we get... Uh, into chapter 6 and following, where we will be handling larger chunks of it at a time. We have taken some time to overview this for several weeks. We started last week doing more of the verse-by-verse exposition, which you are more accustomed to in verses 7 and following last Sunday. We're going to continue picking that up in verse 14 and following and going into chapter 5. Yes, we're actually going to finish chapter 4 this week. So we'll get into chapter 5. We've touched on chapter 5 in the past as well, in the overview of the, the chapter divisions, as I have said many, many times in the past, are not uh, divinely inspired. Uh, they, bo- these books were not written with chapters and verses. They were written as letters, and none of us write chapters and verses to our letters that I can tell. Uh, of course, now you all use... Facebook and texting, so you don't even use complete sentences anymore, let alone paragraphs or anything like that. And uh, But in the day, uh, many of these, even some of the uh, punctuation that's here is not in the Greek. Uh, Paul used very little punctuation uh, because it would have been understood from the very technical language that Greek is. And so we are going to continue to press on, picking up, in uh, verse 14, uh, really verse 13, and pressing into the, what we know, and therefore what we must speak. If we truly believe what we know about Christ, then we ought to speak. And what is it that we ought to be speaking in our renewing day by day? All these things we've referenced in the past, we're going to see driven together here in our passage before us this morning. Before we look into it, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And we do pray for your help uh, in understanding it, in uh, seeking to bring it into our lives, not having been manipulated by us to conform to our way of thinking, but rather that we might uh, conform ourselves to its pure truth. And this is what we ask you to guide us into today, is its truth. We do not wish to uh, dwell upon the philosophies and ideas of men, but we want to know your mind. As you have revealed it through your servant Paul in the scriptures before us, through David, uh, through others, Lord, we do thank you for it. We pray that we might count this time as precious Guard it, Lord, from error in our own thinking as well as in what is spoken. That it might be a time of challenge and a time of encouragement to your honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, Paul begins and says in verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. And Paul is laying down the foundation of his ministry and by so doing is really laying down what ought to be the foundation of our lives and ministries uh, and that is our faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants to compare his faith or really associate his faith with that of the psalmist in Psalm 116. He does that very quickly here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, by quoting this passage uh, verbatim. I believed and therefore I spoke. And we may not necessarily connect the spirit of faith with the spirit of that psalm, but we are going to find a great similarity. That Paul's message of the gospel uh, and our message of the gospel is singularly about forgiveness. 
It is about restoration of a relationship with God through confession of sin and the powerful working of God on our behalf. Not that we go out and work to earn that forgiveness, but we simply fall on our faces before God, humbling ourselves before Him and ask for His forgiveness. And this is the context of the psalmist declaration that I believed and therefore I spoke. The psalmist believed in God. And I invite you to turn back to Psalm 116, which we read earlier this morning in the, in the, in the service. Uh, the entire psalm is one of uh, praising God for his deliverance. That in the midst of the psalmist's life, he considered himself dead. He saw the trouble that he was in. And this trouble is not exterior. We often focus on the trouble. And some of you asked me this morning about my credit card and my truck. And yes, uh, it's been a troubling week in terms of external things. But that's really not what this is referring to. It's not that he is encompassed about by these enemies or by these troubles of life um, that are really just inconveniences. Let's just put it like that. They really are. In, in the context of our lives and in our uh, circumstances and the abundance that we have in this country, uh, most of the things that we consider trouble are really just inconveniences. Uh, we have other resources largely available to us, um, but this is not what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about his soul, and it is his soul that is uh, at the point of near death. He refers to it in verse 4 in Psalm 116. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Uh, He's going to later on, once he has received that deliverance, he's going to have a statement to say to his soul in verse 7. And that is, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And so the reference here in the psalm is not to circumstances of life that are out there that press in on us, just as Paul, uh, in the earlier portions there in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, was not was referring to, yes, we have all this opposition in the world. We have those that want to persecute us, that oppress us, that want to, that want to uh, disquiet us, that, that make our ministry life very difficult. And Corinthians, you shouldn't be adding to that. You should recognize that that does not mean that God is against my ministry, but that the world is. But with all of that pressing about me, with all of that uh, weighing on me, having to deal with those issues that Paul relays there, um, his contention is that even though that is going on externally, internally, his soul is at rest. And that is why there is no destruction. That is why there is no uh, despair. That is why he can stand fast and not lose heart in his ministry is because all those things can't touch his soul. And so he wants to align the faith that he's talking about with the faith of the psalmist who said there was a time when my soul was, was surrounded by the pains of death that it recognized that it was, in fact, in a place of despair. That there was no hope for his soul until he turned to the Lord. And now he can't help but declare his love for the Lord because when one turns to the Lord and prays this prayer, O Lord, I implore you or beg you, deliver my soul. In verse 4 of chapter 116 of Psalm And the Lord responds to that request. And wow, does he ever. Consistently, faithfully, God responds to that kind of praying that recognizes the great need that is in our hearts and our souls and our spirits, cries out to the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord is gracious, he's righteous, he's merciful, he preserves, he saves. All of these the psalmist refers to in his experience that now, because God has delivered him in this fashion, I love the Lord. I cannot cease to love him. And Paul wants to join him in that testimony. That once Paul 
prayed this prayer, Lord, I implore you, I beg you, deliver my soul, God did so. And for the believer, when we stand in that position before God, then, having been delivered from death in our souls, and our spirits, God says he also, in the psalmist in verse 8, keep my feet from falling, therefore I'll walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then comes that statement, I believed, therefore I spoke. What did he speak? I'm greatly afflicted. All men are liars. He's, he now looks around and, and considers the world and he recognizes that there is affliction and there is opposition among men. But his trust is in the Lord. And that working of men against him can no longer touch his soul. His soul is at rest because he has believed in the Lord. The Lord alone. And so he can even get to the point of death and still his soul is at rest and his conclusion is precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints and so therefore out of this new position that I have before God resting my soul in the grace righteousness mercy preservation and salvation of God, I can endure the opposition of men, the lies of men, even to the point of death, and I will serve him faithfully because God has done so much that is irrevocable by men. Men can't take this away. So my soul's at rest, and therefore I will praise the Lord. I will love him. I'll serve him. I'll praise him. I'll pay my vows, he says over and over again. Now I'll give him the, th- the sacrifice of thanksgiving and I will call upon his name. Paul says this testimony, this is what it means. When I say in, here in verse 13 that I have the same spirit of faith. Not I, but we. That we believers have the same spirit of faith. That we have trusted in the living God to rescue us and deliver us Now, there is no opposition that we should be unwilling to brook to serve God. For none of it can really touch us, even if it takes our lives from us, this earthly life. We know that we have a precious place reserved for us directly below the throne of God in heaven for those who are called to such sacrifice. It is this concept, this this philosophy, this belief, this faith that enabled the disciples to walk out of beatings and stonings, praising God for being counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. And Paul joins them. And so he says, we also, just as the psalmist declare, we believe and therefore speak. We declare these same truths that we will serve the Lord no matter what opposition we receive from men. Though all men are liars, though there is great affliction upon us, we will serve the Lord. And this is Paul's testimony. And that is not just something that he has determined in his will, but rather he has derived this from his knowledge. And we talked about this several weeks ago in verse 14, and we looked at all the portions here in this section of Scripture that talk about the knowledge. What do we know about God? What do we know about His work in our life? What do we know about our future? And here Paul, again, brings that forward in verse 14, knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. We are going to certainly consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a historical fact. We then look at the, of the promise that is ours by faith, trusting in that resurrected Lord, that we will be raised with him, a future fact. But that is not the end of it. The verse doesn't end with us being raised up. And sometimes we miss that, that there's more to the resurrection than just conquering death. Uh, that that is really just the beginning of the beginning. That is really just the beginning of forever. And Paul doesn't just stop at the resurrection. He says, yes, Jesus, we will be raised up with Jesus. Because of that future, 
because we believe in that future, we will serve the Lord. We will love Him. We will sing His praises. We will pay our vows. But yet, there is more. Verse 14 adds yet a last clause that the one who raised up the Lord, the one who will raise us up with Jesus, is also the one who will present us with you. See, we're not just raised up uh, to keep living. We are raised up and then we are going to be presented uh, and I re- believe the reference here is to that whole idea that we're presented as the bride, to the bridegroom, that we are presented without spot, without wrinkle, that we are presented as a pure uh, bride uh, to her bridegroom, that we have this privileged position, that this is a presentation that not only that Paul and his entourage anticipated, but he says, listen, it'll be us with you, you all. And thus all the church gathered together will be presented before God as those who are precious in His sight, as those that are, are, have a role to play, a very intimate place in the kingdom of God. And you've heard me referenced regularly uh, that we are not there as servants of the Lord. I would be content with that. That would be phenomenal to be able to be in heaven as, as, the, as the slave But God says, that's not enough. I've sent my son to die for you. It's not enough that you be my slaves forever. I want you to be my sons forever. And we are presented before God as his sons. And in Revelation chapter 7, we have a very wonderful presentation of what that looks like and and the and the pomp that's around all of that and, and all the beauty and splendor that is in, involved in presenting the people of God, to himself. And Paul says, not only are we going to be raised again, but we're going to be presented together before God. And because of this future that is assured for us, because of the historical past, we can endure all things. Why? Verse 15, we have two reasons. He's going to give us the penultimate reason first, and then the ultimate reason. The penultimate reason for Paul's ministry in verse 15 is for all things are for your sakes. Through grace. That grace, having spread through the many, and this is his focus, to spread grace to the many, that he is pouring out his life not for his own reward, but for their benefit. This is not his ultimate goal, his ultimate aim. It's the penultimate. It's the one that comes before the last one. And so here's the next to greatest reason for Paul to serve the Lord in the manner he has done, to serve the gospel, to bring men from the lesser glory of the law into the greater glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for your sakes. I'm willing to suffer everything because if I don't, you're going to be the ones that are going to miss out. You won't hear the gospel. You won't know the truth. You won't be matured and, and growing in your grace and in your walk with God. And so his secondary goal or ambition is with their sakes in mind. That if I don't do this, then you won't benefit. And your lack of benefit will weigh heavily upon me. That I have been so self-oriented that I have not chosen to consider the eternal state of those that I engage with daily. That somehow I can find excuse and reason to delay sharing the gospel with co-workers and neighbors and friends, enemies and relatives. Because I don't want to offend them or damage our relationship And yet those reasons are just selfish. And Paul says, no, I'm willing to endure anything for your sake. Because what is for your benefit 
is not that you and I have a pleasant civil relationship, but rather what is for your benefit is that you participate in the grace of God. That you join the testimony of the psalmist that says, I believed and therefore I spoke. That you would seek the deliverance of the soul even as that one did. And so his one motive, not his greatest, but his first uh, presented here in verse 15 is for the benefit of those to whom he minister, he must do so in this fashion. With tirelessness, with absolute disregard for his physical well-being, whether or not he gets thanked or appreciated, he will serve the Lord because he loves the Lord and because he is considering what is best for you, for your sakes. But then at the end of the verse, we have the ultimate motive. Paul shares, I want you to participate in the gospel with me and experience his grace so that through many having the grace of God spread through all these people may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul's ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God and this is the ultimate purpose of man, whether he is redeemed or unregenerate. It is the purpose of man to bring glory to God and all men will bring glory to God one day. Some through judgment. Let there be no mistake. God will be glorified through the judgment of the wicked. But he would prefer that we glorify him through thanksgiving, having received of his grace and mercy and goodness and salvation. This is God's preference. And the question comes down to it, is it our preference? Paul says, my preference is that God be glorified. Um, Certainly, he's going to be glorified through judgment, but ultimately, I want him to be glorified through thanksgiving by many, many people who have been recipients of the saving grace of God. This is my goal, my ambition is that when I get to heaven, that God is glorified by the many people who are there with me. Not because of my selfless service, but because of God's wondrous grace. This was Paul's motive that drove him to service, was to bring glory to his God. And this the psalmist reminds us. As he says, I, will love the, I love the Lord, I will serve Him, and I will praise Him. We have studied verse 16, and we will keep coming back to it probably even as we go from the glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord in verse chapter 3. But we do not lose heart. Again, we find that testimony that we have talked about week after week, that all the things coming from the outside, we can relegate as not really that important. The world might look at it and say, how can you endure such things? Because our soul is at rest. For we have experienced the salvation of the Lord. And therefore, anything that comes upon us externally remains just that, externally. And we look at it, and we can say with Paul, along with verse 17, our light affliction. Why is it light? Not because it is un, not painful. It's light because it's temporary. It doesn't last very long. When one compares it to what the glory that God anticipates in eternity, Paul says, anything I 
encounter in this outward man is light affliction. I will continue to serve the Lord. There's a corollary passage here to verse 17 I want to read. I think it's going to be better than anything I can say about this in Ephesians. Again, authored by Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. I just want to read uh, seven or eight verses here to give you an expansion of what Paul meant there. And hopefully... uh, give us a greater appreciation for his testimony here and what ought to be our testimony. In Ephesians chapter 3, I'm actually going to read a lot more of it than I planned. Let's read the whole chapter. It'll be worthwhile. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Do you get that? For your sakes. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation, the grace of God which was given to you to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Do you see all the same themes here? Paul says, I'm not going to lose heart. Yes, I have tribulations, but it's all for your glory and to the glory of God. Let's press on, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that extraordinary? Just a great development of this theme in Second Corinthians. This is consistently Paul's message. We are recipients of the grace of God in response to that wonderful possession that has been made ours through the working of Christ Jesus. We now participate in His service. We do so because our heart, our inward man, is renewed day by day. We move from the glory of the law to the glory of Christ. We live and walk in the day. We can endure opposition. It is light affliction to us. Why? Because our purpose is set. We can see the benefit that the gospel can be for others and we make it our purpose to lay it before them and offer it to them. That some may take it up and having taken it up, give glory to God and thus bring us all to that place of glorifying Him. And out of all of this, Paul's conclusion again and again is that I will press on. I will not lose heart. I will not cease in my ministry, for I have my vision set on eternity. 
In addition to knowing about the resurrection, he also knows that in eternity there is something of great benefit waiting us. We often talk about the crowns that scriptures refer to of our presence within the family of God, but Paul takes it to a different level in chapter 5. There's something else that they knew. That if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's not referring to a mansion as we sing the song, I've got a mansion. Um, He's really referring to your new body. That even as refers to this house, that is your body, that when this tent, this temporary dwelling place for your spirit self, this body that has been infested and uh, with that sin, and thus we call it the flesh, the sinful flesh, uh, one day we will bury it. One day we will be separated from it. And what will be waiting for us is uh, something wondrous, an eternal house made not with hands, but one from God. This building he's referring to is the new body that awaits us. This body was made with hands. Um, My mother and father fashioned it. God was the originator of that mechanism by which it would happen, and thus the psalmist can give glory to God for his working within the womb. But it is very clear that this body is one that is formed by the activity of my parentage. And I get really frustrated with Christians who walk around and says, God made me this way. And I was like, no, he didn't. Your parents did. Because when God makes something, it is perfect and wonderful and pure and sinless. And this, Paul says, awaits us. And he knew it. These weak, corrupt, kind of pathetic bodies we've inherited from our fathers. Paul says it's like a tent. It's okay for a short season and Memorial Day weekend I have to talk about tents, right? Everybody's out camping who's not here. Um, I always think that's kind of funny. They all leave the city living beside each other to go out in the wilderness so that they can camp beside each other with even less keeping them from each other. Less distance and less silence, less space. Tents are fine for a weekend, maybe a week. I'm not sure how many of you are ready to sign up to live in a tent for an extended period of time. Paul says that's how you need to view your body, this flesh. It's just, it's okay for now, but it has its inherent flaws. It's really hard to heat and cool. It's, it's just not the best. It was made by the activity of men. And it is flawed. And rightly does the psalmist say, you know that we are made of flesh, that we are dirt. But the body that waits us, that new body, he says, is from God. And it is eternal. And it is one we ought to be groaning after. Not complaining. And there's a we see the word groan and we think of complaining, oh, because that's what we associate groaning with. But it's that whole idea of longing for. That we long to escape this tent, to get out of the tent, to put to fold the tent up, have the camping trip over, so we can go back to running water, to central air conditioning, and to carpeting. We just long for that day. Uh, and Paul says it's okay. Uh, we, we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed our habitation, which is from heaven. Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. We who are in this tent being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. We, it's not just we want to be dead. 
That's not what we're groaning for. I just want to be dead. Don't confuse that with the people who just walk around in self-pity, say, I wish I were dead. That's not what Paul's saying here. He says, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking that we just want to be naked. It's not that we just want to be, go around dead and be ghosts. We have something we're anticipating that is so much superior to what we have. And just as we move from one glory of the law to a brighter glory of the gospel, so we're moving from a tent and, and we're, we're content to be here as long as God wants us to be. But what we really want is that building, that body. It's not that we want to be naked. We want to be, it's not that we want to be uh, dead. It's not that we don't want to have ever a body. But rather, we want to be further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And we're going to stop right there because next week I'm going to talk about the Spirit and the guarantee to finish this verse out. But we come up to this point and we find that God says, I have this in store for you. Here we focus in on our bodies and, and most of us do that. Um, we train them. We try to lose weight. We, we take showers. We curl our hair. We try to make these things look somewhat presentable. We spend inordinate amounts of time on it. Uh, you look at some of the old-time preachers, and one of the things that they were really against was, um, this is going to really rough you up a little bit today, but they were really, uh, for a little while there, preachers preached against indoor plumbing. They preached against it as one of the evils of modern society, and the reason was because you guys are going to be so worried about your body being clean that you're not going to be worried about your souls being clean. That's what they preached back in the day. It wasn't that they were against cleanliness of the body. It was just that it would supplant cleanliness of the soul. You'd be so enamored by being clean and beautiful on the outside that you will neglect the inside. Does it sound like something that has taken root in our society? I think they were pretty prophetic in that. Paul says, listen, we don't put our focus and energy and and efforts into uh, trying to keep this body preserved, alive, and and, uh, as though this is our mansion. Rather, we use it for its purpose. And that is that it is our temporary home in a foreign land where we are ambassadors of a great kingdom. And it is the kingdom that we are looking for. It is that body. Not the one I got from my parents. And if I had my parents here before you, you would say, yeah, the, the, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I got a nice bald head. I got the, all the same characteristics that I picked up from my parents. But oh, how I look forward to that day. Not because I wish I were dead. Rather, I wish for what my Heavenly Father has prepared for me. And He has prepared me for it. And this is a phenomenal statement in the beginning of verse 5. He has prepared us for that. He is preparing you for your eternal body. Think about that phraseology in reference to your Christian life today. Are you training and preparing yourself? Is God at work in your life preparing you for that body? You might say, well, if I'm getting rid of this body, what is it that needs to be trained? Exactly what I want you to think. That's the exact question I want you to ask. What is it that God is preparing of me for that day. And it is the immaterial part of you. It is your, your heart that Paul talks about that you're not going to lose heart. It is your, your uh, spirit. It's your soul that the psalmist talks about. It is all these things that, that God says, I'm going to prepare these things for your eternal body. And if that means that I have to bring some hardship against your tent, 
in order to do a greater work on your interior self to prepare your inner man for its final destination, then accept it from God, look to Him, and serve Him, love Him, praise Him, regardless of what comes in opposition against you, because you know that He is doing a great work in you. And this is the power behind the, the, the verses that talk about He will um, work all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That good is not about being comfortable in your retirement, earthly-wise. That good is about preparing you for your eternal state. And if that means discomfort to the tent, so be it. It has to do with what Paul says in Philippians, that I know that he who... I've trusted in his faithful and, and will complete the thing he's begun in me. He's begun something here. And he will continue that work in me to f- make me, prepare me for my eternal dwelling. My eternal body. And Paul wants to move our attention from being whelmed by the circumstances of life around us of credit cards getting swiped and of trucks breaking down and other things along that line that really are just inconveniences and to sweep them away and to ask ourselves, what's God preparing me for? How can I serve him while I'm still in this tent? Yeah, I long to get that glorious new body. But meanwhile, here I am. The Lord wants me to serve him in this tent. The tent's going to get battered about a little bit, but it's okay because it's just a tent. It's not my permanent dwelling. So we look for our dwelling place, our bodies that God has prepared for us. And we always use that term, He has prepared that body for us. Yes, He has made it. But He is also preparing us for the body that awaits us in heaven. And let's not neglect that side of the equation. In our view of eternity, we often talk about what's being prepared for us when we get there. And that's great, and I don't want to discourage you from thinking that, but I want you to equally couple with that kind of thinking the the other side of that thinking, which is God is doing something in my life, prepare me for that place. And that began with my salvation, but it doesn't end there. And thus our testimony needs to be that I might love the Lord, that I might serve the Lord, that I might pay my vows, that I might praise Him while I'm still in this tent, that he is still at work. What is that work? We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The image of Christ. We are being transformed from the glory of the law to the glory of the gospel, from from. The image of man into the image of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We are being transformed. This is the work of God to prepare us for our eternal home. And Paul says, "Uh, if we know this, if we know the temporality of these bodies... And we know and are confident of what awaits us after the resurrection being presented to God with the other saints. Oh, we will serve. We will be renewed. Our souls will be untouched by the conditions we experience here in this place. For we will rejoice that God is working in us for the good. And that good I believe with all my heart because God's word declares it. And thus I speak 
is to prepare us for that. Yes, he's prepared that for us, but he's also preparing us for that day, for that body. And we dare not lose heart. We dare not fall away from such a wondrous thing that God has done for us. Let us move from glory to glory and allow God to transform us into the image of his Son. And if that means that we're going to have to have some discomforts and some inconveniences and maybe a little bit of pain on this side of glory, then so be it. We'll do it with a smile, marveling that God is working to prepare us for that very thing. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity that we have had this hour to consider your truth. And Lord, we look forward to that day. We anticipate it. We um, want to move from this to that. We thank you so much for taking us from the glory of the law, that dim reflection of your holiness, to the glory of Christ. We can walk as children of light. And Lord, we know that you continue to work to transform us into that image more and more each day. Lord, we pray that we might be cooperative with that endeavor. Rejoicing that you are faithful, righteous, good, gracious, merciful, preserving and saving your own. Lord, we do pray that until that day we might join with Paul who joined with the psalmist in saying we love you for you have saved us. We will serve you because you own us. We will praise you for there is no God like you. We will pay our vows for we anticipate a kingdom and a body not made with human hands, waiting for us to be prepared sufficiently to inherit it. Lord, continue your work in us to your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.